Book one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume two, Part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume two, Part two, by François René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book one you know that i have often moved from spot to spot while writing these memoirs that i have often described those spots spoken of the feelings with which they inspired me and recalled my memories thus mingling the history of my thoughts and of my wandering habitations with the history of my life you see where i am living now walking this morning on the cliffs behind dieppe castle i saw the postern which communicates with the cliffs by means of a bridge thrown over a ditch madame de longueville escaped by that way from queen anne of austria embarking secretly at the arve she landed at rotterdam and joined the maréchal de turenne at stenay the great captain's laurels were no longer innocent and the fair but caustic outlaw treated the culprit none too well madame de longueville who had recovered from the hotel de rambouillet the throne of versailles and the municipality of paris became smitten with the author of the maxime and was as faithful to him as she was able the latter lives less by his thoughts than by the friendship of madame de lafayette madame de sevigné the verses of la fontaine and the love of madame de longueville see whither illustrious attachments lead the princesse de conde when on the point of death said to madame de brienne my dear friend acquaint that poor wretch who is at stenay of the state in which you see me and let her learn how to die fine words but the princess forgot that she herself had been loved by henry the fourth and that when her husband carried her to brussels she had wanted to rejoin the Bearnese to escape at night by a window and then to do thirty or forty leagues on horseback she was at that time a poor wretch of seventeen descending the cliff i found myself on the high road to paris it ascends swiftly on leaving dieppe on the right on the rising slope of a bank stands the wall of a cemetery by the side of that wall was fixed the wheel of a rope-walk two rope-spinners walking backwards in line and swinging from leg to leg were softly singing together i listened they had come to that couplet of the via caporale a fine poetic lie which has brought us to our present state qui là-bas sanglote et regarde et c'est la veuve du tambour etc those men uttered the refrain conscrit au pas ne pleurez pas marchez au pas au pas in a voice so manly and so pathetic that the tears came to my eyes whilst themselves keeping step and twisting their hemp they appeared to be spinning out the old corporal's dying moments there was something i cannot say what in that glory peculiar to beranger thus lonesomely revealed by two sailors singing a soldier's death within view of the sea the cliff reminded me of a monarchical greatness the road of a plebeian celebrity i compared and thought the men at the two extremities of society and i asked myself to which of those eras i should have preferred to belong when the present shall have disappeared like the past which of those two renowns will the most attract the notice of posterity and yet if facts were all if in history the value of names did not counterbalance the value of events what a difference between my time and the time which elapsed between the deaths of henry the fourth and mazarin what are the troubles of sixteen forty eight compared to that revolution which has devoured the old world of which it the revolution will die perhaps leaving behind it neither an old nor a new state of society had not i to paint in my memoirs pictures of incomparably higher importance than the scenes related by the duc de la rochefoucauld at dieppe itself what was the careless and voluptuous idol of seduced and rebellious paris by the side of madame la duchesse de berry the salvos of artillery which announced to the sea the presence of the royal widow resound no longer the flattery of powder and smoke has left nothing upon the shore save the moaning of the waves the two daughters of bourbon anne genevieve and marie caroline have departed the two sailors singing the song of the plebeian poet will plunge into the abyss 
dieppe no longer contains myself it was another i an i of my early days now past that formerly inhabited these regions and that i has succumbed for our days die before ourselves here you have seen me a sub-lieutenant in the navarre regiment drilling recruits on the pebbles you have seen me here again exiled under bonaparte you shall find me here again when the days of july surprise me in this place behold me here once more i here resume my pen to continue my confessions in order that we may understand one another it is well to cast a glance at the present state of my memoirs what happens to every contractor working on a large scale has happened to me i have in the first place built the outer wings of my edifice and then removing and restoring my scaffoldings in different positions i have raised the stone and the mortar for the intermediate structures it used to take several centuries to complete a gothic cathedral if heaven grant me life the work will be finished by stages of my various years the architect always the same will have changed only in age for the rest it is a punishment to preserve one's intellectual being intact imprisoned in a worn-out material covering st augustine feeling that his clay was falling from him said to god be thou a tabernacle unto my soul and to men he said when you shall have known me in this book pray for me thirty-six years must be reckoned between the things which commence my memoirs and those upon which i am now engaged how shall i resume with any spirit the narration of a subject formerly replete for me with passion and fire when it is no longer with living beings that i am about to converse when it becomes a question of arousing lifeless effigies from the depths of eternity of descending into a funeral vault there to play at life am i not myself almost dead have my opinions not changed do i see objects from the same point of view have not the general and prodigious events which have accompanied or followed the personal events that so greatly perturbed me diminished their importance in the eyes of the world as well as in my own eyes whosoever prolongs his career feels his hours grow cold he no longer finds on the morrow the interest which he felt on the eve when i seek in my thoughts there are names and even persons that escape my memory and yet they may have caused my heart to throb vanity of man forgetting and forgotten it is not enough to say to one's dreams to love revive for them to come to life again the realm of shadows can be opened only with the golden bough and it needs a young hand to pluck it o convenant de la res pachy in prison for eight years in great britain i had seen only the english world so different especially at that time from the european world as the dover packet approached calais in the spring of eighteen hundred my gaze preceded me on shore i was struck by the needy aspect of the country scarce a few masts were to be seen in the harbour inhabitants in carmonial jackets and cotton caps came along the jetty to meet us the conquerors of the continent made themselves known to me by a clatter of wooden shoes when we came alongside the gendarme and custom-house officers leapt on deck to inspect our luggage and our passports in france a man is always suspected and the first thing we perceive in our business as well as in our amusements is a cocked hat or a bayonet mrs lindsay was waiting for us at the inn the next day we set out with her for paris madame d'aguesseau a young kinswoman of hers and i on the road one saw hardly any men blackened and sunburnt women barefooted their heads bare or covered with a kerchief were tilling the fields one would have taken them for slaves i ought rather to have been struck by the independence and virility of that land where the women wielded the mattock while the men wielded the musket the villagers looked as though a conflagration had passed over them they were wretched and half demolished mud or dust on every hand dunghills and rubbish heaps to the right and left of the road appeared overthrown country mansions of their level thickets there remained only some squared trunks upon which children played one saw battered enclosure walls deserted churches from which the dead had been expelled steeples without bells cemeteries without crosses headless saints that had been stoned in their niches 
the walls were smeared with those republican inscriptions that had already grown old liberty equality fraternity or death sometimes they had attempted to efface the word death but the red or black letters showed through the coating of lime this nation which seemed on the point of extinction was commencing a new world like those peoples which issued from the dusk of the savagery and destruction of the middle ages approaching the capital between econ and paris the elms had not been cut down i was struck by those fine roadside avenues unknown on english soil france was as new to me as in former days the forests of america saint denis was laid bare its windows were broken the rain penetrated into its grass-grown naves and there were no more tombs i have since seen there the bones of louis the sixteenth the cossacks the coffin of the duc de berry and the catafalque of louis eighteen auguste de la Mognon came to meet mrs lindsay his well-appointed carriage formed a contrast with the clumsy carts the dirty broken-down diligences drawn by hacks harnessed with ropes which i had met since leaving calais mrs lindsay lived at the Ternes. i was put down on the chemin de la revolte and made my way to my hostess's house across the fields i stayed with her for four-and-twenty hours i there met a great fat monsieur la salle whom she employed in arranging emigrant business she sent to inform monsieur de fontaine of my arrival in eighteen-forty hours he came to fetch me in a little room which mrs lindsay had hired for me at an inn almost at her door it was a sunday we entered paris on foot by the barriere de l'etoile at about three o'clock in the afternoon we have no idea to-day of the impression which the excesses of the revolution had made on men's minds in europe and chiefly among those absent from france during the terror i felt literally as though i were about to descend into hell i had it is true witnessed the beginnings of the revolution but the great crimes had then not yet been accomplished and i had remained under the yoke of subsequent events as these had been related in the midst of the peaceful and orderly society of england proceeding under my false name and convinced that i was compromising my friend fontaine to my great astonishment on entering the champs elysees i heard the sound of violins horns clarionets and drums i saw public balls at which men and women were dancing further on the tuileries palace appeared to my eyes against the background of its two great clumps of chestnut trees as for the place louis quinze it was bare it had the decay the melancholy and deserted look of an old amphitheatre one crossed it quickly i was quite surprised to hear no moans i was afraid of stepping in the blood of which not a trace remained my eyes could not tear themselves from the place in the sky where the instrument of death had raised its head i thought i saw my brother and my sister-in-law in their shirts standing bound beside the blood-stained machine it was there that the head of louis the sixteenth had fallen in spite of the gaiety in the streets the church steeples were dumb it seemed to me as though i had returned on the day of infinite sorrow on good friday m de fontaine lived in the rue st honore near st roche he took me home with him introduced me to his wife and then took me to his friend m joubert where i found a temporary shelter i was received like a traveller of whom one has heard speak the next day i went to the police under the name of lasagne to lodge my foreign passport and to receive in exchange a permit to remain in paris which was renewed from month to month in a few days i hired an entresol in the rue de lille on the side of the rue de saint pere i had brought with me the genie du christianisme and the first sheets of the work printed in london i was directed to m mignaret a worthy man who consented to recommence the interrupted printing and to advance me something to live on not a soul knew of my essais sur les révolutions notwithstanding what m lemierre had written to me i unearthed the old philosopher de l'île de salle who had just published his memoirs en faveur de dieu and went to call on ganguenet he lodged in the rue de grenelle saint-germain near the hotel du bon la fontaine his porter's box still bore this inscription here we honour each other with the title of citizen and say thee and thou shut the door behind thee if you please i went up m ganguenet who hardly recognised me spoke to me from the height of the grandeur of all that he was and had been 
I humbly retired, and did not endeavour to renew such disproportionate relations. I continued at the bottom of my heart to cherish regretful memories of England. I had lived so long in that country that I had adopted its habits. I could not reconcile myself to the dirt of our houses, our staircases, our tables, to our uncleanliness, our noisiness, our familiarity, the indiscretion of our loquacity. I was English in manners, in taste, and to a certain degree in thought. For if, as it is said, Lord Byron sometimes drew inspiration for his child Harold from René, it is also true to say that my eight years' residence in Great Britain, preceded by a journey in America, together with my long habit of talking, writing, and even thinking in English, had necessarily influenced the turn and expression of my ideas. But gradually I came to relish the good fellowship for which we are distinguished, that charming, swift, easy commerce of thought, that utter absence of arrogance and prejudice, that heedlessness of fortune and names, that natural level of all ranks, that equality of mind which makes French society incomparable and redeems our faults. After a few months' residence among us, one feels that he can no longer live except in Paris. I locked myself into my entresol and gave myself up entirely to work. In my intervals of rest I went and reconnoitred in various directions. The circus in the middle of the Palais Royal had been filled up. Camille Desmoulins no longer held forth in the open air. One no longer saw bands of prostitutes going round, virginal attendants of the goddess reason, and walking under the conduct of David, Costumier, and Corriban. At the outlet of each alley, in the galleries, one met men crying sights, gallantry shows, peep shows, physical cabinets, strange animals. In spite of all the heads that had been cut off, idlers still remained. From the cellars of the Palais Marchand came bursts of music, accompanied by the double diapason of the big drums. It was perhaps there that dwelt the giants whom I sought, and whom immense events must necessarily have produced. I went down, an underground ball was jigging amidst seated spectators drinking beer. A little hunchback, perched on a table, played the violin, and sang a hymn to Bonaparte, which ended with these lines. Par ses vertus, par ses autres, il méritait d'être le père. He was given a sou after the ritornello. Such is the groundwork of the human society which bore Alexander, and was then bearing Napoleon. I visited the places where I had taken the reveries of my early years. In my old-time convents, the clubmen had been driven out after the monks. Wandering behind the Luxembourg, my footsteps led me to the Chartreuse, its demolition was being completed. The Place des Victoires and the Place Vendôme mourned the missing effigies of the great king. The community house of the Capuchins was sacked. The inner cloisters served as a retreat for Robertson's dissolving views. At the Cordelier I inquired in vain for the Gothic nave, where I had seen Marat and Danton in their prime. On the Quai des Théatins, the church of that order had been turned into a café, and a rope-dancer's theatre. At the door was a coloured poster representing acrobats dancing on the tightrope, with, in big letters, admission free i elbowed my way among the crowd into that perfidious cave i had no sooner taken my seat than waiters entered napkin in hand shouting like madmen give your orders gentlemen give your orders i did not wait to be told a second time and i pitiably made my escape amid the jeering cries of the assembly because i had no money wherewith to give my orders the revolution has become divided into three parts which have nothing in common between them the republic the empire and the restoration those three different worlds, each as completely finished as the others, seem separated by centuries. Each of these three worlds has had its fixed principle. The principle of the Republic was equality, that of the Empire, force, that of the Restoration, liberty. The Republican era is the most original, and has made the deepest impression, because it has been unique in history. Never had there been seen, nor ever will be again, physical order produced by moral disorder, unity issuing from the government of the multitude, the scaffold substituted for the law, and obeyed in the name of humanity. In 1801 I assisted at the second social transformation. 
the jumble was a strange one by an agreed travesty a host of people became persons who they were not each carried his assumed or borrowed name hung round his neck as the venetians at the carnival carry a little mask in their hand to show that they are masked one was reputed an italian or a spaniard another a prussian or a dutchman i was a swiss the mother passed for her son's aunt the father for his daughter's uncle the owner of an estate was only its steward this movement reminded me in an opposite sense of the movement of seventeen eighty nine when the monks and religious issued from their cloisters and the old society was invaded by the new the latter after supplanting the former was supplanted in its turn nevertheless the orderly world commenced to spring up again people left the cafes and the streets to return to their houses they gathered together the remains of their family they readjusted their inheritance by collecting its remnants as after a battle the troop is beaten and the losses counted such churches as remain whole were opened i had the happiness to sound the trumpet at the gate of the temple one distinguished the old republican generations which were retiring imperial generations which were coming to the front generals of the requisition poor rude of speech stern of mien who from all their campaigns had brought back nothing save wounds and ragged coats past officers glittering with the gold lace of the consular army the returned emigrant chatted quietly with the assassins of some of his kindred the porters all great partisans of the late monsieur de robespierre regretted the sights on the place louis quinze where they cut off the heads of women who my own concierge in the rue de lille told me had necks white as chicken's flesh the men of september changing their names and their districts sold baked potatoes at the street corners but they were often obliged to pack off because the people recognizing them upset their stalls and tried to kill them the revolutionaries who had waxed rich began to move into the great mansions of the faubourg saint-germain that had been sold on the road to become barons and counts the jacobins spoke only of the horrors of seventeen ninety three of the necessity for chastising the proletarians and putting down the excesses of the populace bonaparte placing the brutuses and scaevolas in his police was preparing to bedizen them with ribbons to befoul them with titles to force them to betray their opinions and dishonour their crimes amid all this sprang up a vigorous generation sown in blood and growing up to shed none save that of the foreigner from day to day the metamorphosis was accomplished which turned republicans into imperialists and the tyranny of all into the despotism of one while occupied in curtailing expanding altering the sheets of the genie du christianisme i was driven by necessity to busy myself with other work m de fontaine was then editing the mercure de france he suggested that i should write in that paper these combats were not without a certain danger the only way to touch politics was through literature and half a word was enough for bonaparte's police a singular circumstance which prevented me from sleeping lengthened my hours and gave me more leisure i had bought two turtle doves they cooed a great deal i enclosed them in vain at night in my little travelling trunk they only cooed the more in one of the moments of sleeplessness which they caused me i bethought myself of writing for the mercure a letter to madame de steel this freak caused me suddenly to emerge from the shade a few pages in a newspaper did what my two thick volumes on the revolution had been unable to do my head showed a little above obscurity this first success seemed to foretell that which was to follow i was engaged in correcting the proofs of atala an episode contained as was rene in the genie du christianisme when i perceived that some sheets were missing i was seized with fright i thought they had stolen my novel assuredly a very ill-founded dread for no one thought that i was worth robbing be this as it may i determined to publish atala separately and i declared my resolution in a letter addressed to the journal des débats and the publicistes before venturing to expose the work to the light of day i showed it to m de fontaine he had already read fragments of it in manuscript in london when he came to father aubrey's speech beside atala's deathbed he said brusquely in a rough voice that's not right it's bad write that over again i went away disconsolate i did not feel capable of doing better 
I wanted to throw the whole thing into the fire. I spent from eight till eleven o'clock in the evening in my entresol, seated at my table, with my forehead resting on the back of my hands, opened and spread out over my paper. I was angry with Fontaine, I was angry with myself. I did not even try to write, so great was my despair of self. Towards midnight I heard the voice of my turtle-doves, softened by distance and rendered more plaintive by the prison in which I kept them confined. Inspiration returned to me. I then and there wrote the speech of the missionary, without a single interlineation, without erasing a word, just as it remained and as it stands to-day. With a beating heart I took it in the morning to Fontaine, who exclaimed, "'That's it, that's right. I told you you could do better. The noise which I have made in this world dates from the publication of Atala. I ceased to live for myself, and my public career commenced. After so many military successes, a literary success seemed a prodigy. People were hungering for it. The uncommon nature of the work added to the surprise of the crowd. Atala, falling into the midst of the literature of the empire, of that classic school whose very sight, like that of a rejuvenated old woman, inspired boredom, was a sort of production of an unknown kind. People did not know whether to class it among the monstrosities or among the beauties. Was it a Gorgon or a Venus? The assembled academicians discoursed learnedly upon its sex and its nature, in the same way as they made reports upon the Génie du Christianisme. The old century rejected, the new welcomed it. Atala became so popular that, with the Brinvilliers, she went to swell Kirsch's collection. The wagoners' inns were decorated with red, green, and blue prints, representing Chactas, Father Aubrey, and the daughter of Simagan. My characters were displayed in wax, in wooden boxes, on the keys, as images of the Virgin and the Saints are displayed at the fair. In a boulevard theatre I saw my savage woman, in a headdress of cock's feathers, talking to a savage of her own kind, of the soul of solitude, in a way that brought the sweat to my brow with confusion. At the Varieté they played a piece in which a little girl and a little boy, leaving their boarding-school, went off by track-boat to get married in a small town. As on landing they spoke with a wild look of nothing but crocodiles, storks, and forests, their parents thought that they had gone mad. I was overwhelmed with parodies, caricatures, and ridicule. The Abbe Morellet, in order to confound me, took his maid-servant on his knees, and was unable to hold the young virgin's feet in his hands, as Chactas held Atala's feet during the storm. If the Chactas of the Rue d'Anjou had had his portrait painted in this attitude, I would have forgiven him his criticism. All this bustle served to increase the fuss attendant upon my appearance. I became the fashion, my head was turned. I was unaccustomed to the delights of self-love, and became intoxicated with it. I loved fame like a woman, like a first love, and yet, coward that I was, my affright equalled my passion. I was a conscript, and stood the fire badly. My natural timidity, the doubts I have always had of my talent, made me humble in the midst of my triumphs. I shrank from my splendour. I wandered in lonely places, trying to extinguish the halo with which my head was crowned. In the evenings, with my hat thrust down over my eyes, lest the great man should be recognised, I went to a public smoking-room to read my praises in secret, in some small unknown paper. Alone with my renown, I prolonged my walks as far as the steam-pump at Chaillot, on the same road where I had suffered so much on going to court. I was no more at my ease with my new honours. When my superiority dined for thirty sous in the Latin quarter, it swallowed its food the wrong way, troubled as it was by the staring of which it thought itself the object. I watched myself, I said to myself, and yet it is you, extraordinary being, eating like any one else. In the Champs-Élysées was a café which I liked, because of some nightingales which hung in a cage inside the coffee-room. Madame Rousseau, who kept the place, knew me by sight, without knowing who I was. At ten o'clock in the evening they used to bring me a cup of coffee, and I looked for Atala and the Petite Affiche, to the sound of the voices of my half-dozen Philomelas. Alas, I soon saw poor Madame Rousseau die. Our society of the nightingales, and of the fair Indian who sang, sweet habit of loving, so needful to life, lasted but a moment. If success had no power to prolong in me this stupid infatuation of vanity, 
or to pervert my reason, it was attended with dangers of another kind. Those dangers increased on the appearance of the Genie du Christianisme, and on my resignation after the death of the Duc d'Anguien. Then came thronging around me, together with the young women who cry over novels, the crowd of Christian women and those other noble enthusiasts, whose breast beats high at the sight of an honourable action. The young girls of thirteen or fourteen were the most dangerous, for, knowing neither what they want nor what they want with you, they enticingly mingle your image with a multitude of fables, ribbons, and flowers. Jean-Jacques Rousseau speaks of the declarations which he received on the publication of the Nouvelle Héloïse, and of the conquests which were offered him. I do not know if empires would have been thus yielded to me, but I do know that I was buried beneath a heap of scented notes. If those notes were not, to-day, notes from so many grandmothers, I should be puzzled how to relate, with becoming modesty, how they fought for a line in my hand, how they picked up an envelope addressed by me, and how, blushing and with lowered head, they hid it beneath a flowing veil of long tresses. If I have not been spoilt, it must be because my nature is good. Whether from genuine politeness or inquisitive weakness, I sometimes went so far as to think myself obliged to call and thank the unknown ladies who signed the flattery they addressed to me with their names. One day I found a bewitching creature under her mother's wing, on a fourth floor, where I have never set foot since. A fair pole received me in silk-hung rooms, half odalisk, half valkyrie. She looked like a snowdrop with its white flowers, or like one of those graceful heather blooms which replace the other daughters of Flora, when the season of the latter has not yet come, or has passed. That female chorus, varied in age and beauty, was the realisation of my former self. The twofold effect upon my vanity and my feelings was so much the more to be dreaded, inasmuch as, until then, excepting one serious attachment, I had been neither sought out nor distinguished by the crowd. At the same time, I am bound to say that, even though it were easy for me to take advantage of a passing illusion, my sincerity revolted against the idea of a voluptuousness that would have come to me by the chaste paths of religion, to be loved through the génie du christianisme, loved for the extreme anxion, loved for the fête des morts, I could never have been so shameful a tartuffe. I knew a Provençal physician, Dr. Vigarou, he had arrived at an age when every pleasure means the loss of a day, and he said that he had no regret for the time thus lost. Without troubling himself whether he gave the happiness which he received, he went towards a death of which he hoped to make his last delight. Nevertheless, I was a witness of his poor tears when he breathed his last. He could not hide his affliction from me, it was too late. His white hairs were not long enough to conceal and wipe away his tears. The only one to be really unhappy on leaving the earth is the unbeliever. For the man without faith, existence is terrible in this, that it carries a sense of annihilation. If one had not been born, he would not experience the horror of ceasing to be. The life of the atheist is a frightful lightning flash, which serves but to reveal an abyss. O great and merciful God, thou hast not cast us upon earth for unworthy troubles and a miserable happiness. Our inevitable disenchantment admonishes us that our destinies are more sublime. Whatever may have been our errors, if we have preserved a serious spirit and thought of thee in the midst of our weaknesses, we shall, whenever thy goodness sets us free, be carried to that region where attachments endure for ever. It was not long before I received the punishment of my literary vanity, the most detestable of all, if not the most foolish. I had thought that I should be able to relish in petto the satisfaction of being a sublime genius, not by wearing, as they do to-day, a beard and an eccentric coat, but by remaining dressed like decent people, distinguished only by superiority. Useless hope! My pride was to be chastened. The correction was administered by the political persons whom I was obliged to know. Celebrity is a benefice with the cure of souls. M. de Fontaine was acquainted with Madame Bacciocchi. He introduced me to Bonaparte's sister, and soon after to the first consul's brother, Lucien. The latter had a country place near Saint-Louis-le-Plessis, where I was coerced to go and dine. The chateau had once belonged to the Cardinal de Bernis. 
Lucien had in his garden the tomb of his first wife, a lady half German and half Spanish, and the memory of the poet cardinal. The nutrient nymph of a stream dug with a spade was a mule which drew water from a well. That was the commencement of all the rivers which Bonaparte was to cause to flow in his empire. Efforts were being made to have my name struck off the lists. I was already called, and called myself aloud, Chateaubriand, forgetting that I ought to call myself Lasagne. Emigrants came to see me, among others, Messrs. de Bonald and de Chendolier, Christian de Lamoignon, my companion in exile in London, took me to Madame Recamier. The curtain fell suddenly between her and me. The person who filled the largest place in my existence, on my return from the emigration, was Madame la Comtesse de Beaumont. She lived during a part of the year at the Chateau de Passy, near Villeneuve-sur-Yon, which M. Joubert inhabited during the summer. Madame de Beaumont returned to Paris and expressed a wish to meet me. So that my life might be one long chain of regrets, Providence willed it that the first person who received me kindly at the outset of my public career should also be the first to disappear. Madame de Beaumont opens the funeral procession of those women who have passed away before me. My most distant memories rest upon ashes, and they have continued to fall from grave to grave. Like the Indian pundit, I recite the prayers for the dead until the flowers of my chaplet are faded. Madame de Beaumont was the daughter of Armand, Marc de saint hérem Comte de Montmorin, French ambassador in Madrid, commandant in Brittany, member of the Assembly of Notables in 1787, and foreign minister under Louis XVI, by whom he was much liked. He perished on the scaffold, where he was followed by a portion of his family. Madame de Beaumont was ill rather than well favoured, and very like her portrait by Madame Lebrun. Her face was thin and pale, her eyes were almond-shaped and would have perhaps been too brilliant, if an extraordinary suavity of expression had not half extinguished her glances, and caused them to shine languidly, as a ray of light becomes mellowed by passing through crystal water. Her character had a sort of rigidity and impatience, which arose from the strength of her feelings and from the inward suffering which she experienced. Endowed with loftiness of soul and great courage, she was born for the world, from which her spirit had withdrawn through choice and unhappiness. But when a friendly voice evoked that secluded intelligence, it came and spoke to you in words from heaven. Madame de Beaumont's extreme weakness made her slow of expression, and this slowness was touching. I knew this afflicted woman only at the moment of her flight. She was already stricken with death, and I devoted myself to her sufferings. I had taken a lodging in the Rue Saint-Honoré, at the Hôtel des Tempes, near the Rue Neuve du Luxembourg. In this latter street, Madame de Beaumont occupied an apartment, looking out upon the gardens of the Ministry of Justice. I called to see her every evening, with her friends and mine, M. Joubert, M. de Fontaine, M. de Bonald, M. Mollet, M. Pasquier, M. de Chendolet, men who have filled a place in literature and public life. Full of oddities and eccentricities, M. Joubert will be an eternal loss to those who knew him. He had an extraordinary grip upon one's mind and heart, and, when once he had seized hold of you, his image was there like a fixed thought, like an obsession that refused to be driven away. He made great pretensions to calmness, and no one was so easily perturbed as he. He watched himself in order to stop those emotions of the mind which he thought injurious to himself, and constantly his friends came and disturbed the precautions which he had taken to keep well, for he could not prevent himself from being affected by their sadness or joy. He was an egoist who troubled himself only about others. In order to recover his strength, he often thought himself obliged to close his eyes and refrain from speaking for hours at a time. Heaven knows what noise and movement passed inwardly within him during this repose and silence which he laid upon himself. M. Joubert at every moment changed his diet and regimen, living one day on milk, another on mincemeat, causing himself to be jolted at full speed over the roughest roads, or drawn at a snail's pace along the smoothest alleys. When he read, he tore out of his books the leaves which displeased him, thus forming a library for his own use, composed of scooped-out works, contained in bindings too large for them. 
a profound metaphysician his philosophy thanks to an elaboration peculiar to himself became painting or poetry a plato with the heart of a la fontaine he had formed an idea of perfection which prevented him from finishing anything in manuscripts found after his death he said i am like an aeolian harp which gives forth a few beautiful sounds and plays no tune madame victorine de chastenay maintained that he had the appearance of a soul which had met with a body by accident and put up with it as best it could a definition both charming and true we laughed at the enemies of m de fontaine who tried to pass him off for a deep and dissembling politician he was simply an irascible poet frank to the pitch of anger with a mind hedged in by contrariety and as little able to conceal its opinion as to accept that of others the literary principles of his friend joubert were not his the latter found some good everywhere and in every writer fontaine on the contrary held such and such a doctrine in abhorrence and could not hear the names mentioned of certain authors he was the sworn enemy of the principles of modern composition to place before the reader's eyes material action the crime at work or the gibbet with its rope seemed to him so many enormities he maintained that objects should never be seen except amid poetic surroundings as though under a crystal globe sorrow spending itself mechanically through the eyes seemed to him a sensation fit only for the cirque or the greve he understood the tragic sentiment only as ennobled by admiration and changed through the medium of art into a charming pity i quoted the greek vases to him in the arabesques of those vases one sees hector's body drawn behind the car of achilles while a little figure flying in the air represents the shade of patrocles consoled by the vengeance of the son of thetis well joubert cried fontaine what do you say to that metamorphosis of the muse how those greeks respected the soul joubert thought himself attacked and placed fontaine in contradiction with himself by reproaching him with his indulgence for me these discussions highly comical as they often were never came to an end one evening at half-past eleven when i lived on the place louis quinze in the attic floor of madame de coilin's house fontaine climbed up my eighty-four stairs again to come furiously with many raps of his cane to finish an argument which he had left interrupted it concerned picard whom at that moment he placed far above moliere he would have taken good care not to have written a single word of what he said fontaine talking and fontaine pen in hand were two different men it was m de fontaine i like to repeat who encouraged my first attempts it was he who announced the publication of the genie du christianisme it was his muse which full of astonished devotion directed mine in the new paths along which it had precipitated itself he taught me to conceal the deformity of objects by the manner of throwing light upon them to put classic language into the mouths of my romantic characters as far as in me lay in former days there were men who were guardians of taste like the dragons who watched over the golden apples in the garden of the hesperides they did not allow youth to enter until it was able to touch the fruit without spoiling it my friend's writings take you by a happy road the mind experiences a sense of well-being and finds itself in an harmonious situation where everything charms and nothing wounds m de fontaine incessantly revised his productions none was more convinced than that master of the old days of the excellence of the maxim hasten slowly what then would he say to-day when both morally and physically we exert ourselves to do away with distances and when we think we can never go fast enough m de fontaine preferred to travel at the will of a delicious measure you have read what i said of him when i found him in london the regrets which i expressed then i must repeat now life obliges us ever to weep in anticipation or in remembrance m de bonal had a shrewd intelligence his ingenuity was mistaken for genius he had dreamt out his political metaphysics with the army of conde in the black forest in the same way as those jena and Göttingen professors who have since marched at the head of their pupils and let themselves be killed for the liberty of germany an innovator although he had been a musketeer under louis sixteen he looked upon the ancients as children in politics and literature 
and he maintained while he was the first to employ the fatuousness of the language now in use that the grand master of the university was not yet sufficiently advanced to understand that Chendolle, with knowledge and talent not native but acquired was so sad that he nicknamed himself the crow he went freebooting in my works we had made a compact i yielded him my skies my mists my clouds but it was arranged that he should leave me my zephyrs my waves and my forests i am now speaking only of my literary friends as to my political friends i do not know whether i shall tell you about them principles and speeches have sunk abysses between us madame ocar and madame de vintimille came to the meetings in the rue neuve du luxembourg madame de vintimille one of the women of olden times of whom few remain went into the world and brought us news of what was going on i asked her if people were still building cities the descriptions of little scandals upon which she entered with a poignant but inoffensive raillery made us the more heartily appreciate our own security madame de vintimille had been sung together with her sister by m de la harpe her language was guarded her character restrained her wit acquired she had lived with mesdames de chevreuse de longueville de la valliere de maintenon with madame geoffroin and madame du defiant she blended well with a company whose charm depended upon the variety of its wits and the combination of their different values madame ocar had been fondly loved by madame de beaumont's brother who had occupied himself with the lady of his thoughts to the very scaffold as obiac had gone to the gallows kissing a sleeve of soft blue velvet which remained to him from the favours of margaret of valois never again will there assemble under the same roof so many distinguished persons belonging to different ranks and of different destinies able to talk of the commonest as of the loftiest things a simplicity of speech which came not from poverty but from choice it is perhaps the last company in which the french genius of olden time has appeared among the new french will not be found that urbanity which is the fruit of education and which was transformed by long usage into aptness of character what has become of that company make plans bring friends together you but prepare for yourself an eternal mourning madame de beaumont is no more joubert is no more chendolle is no more madame de vintimille is no more i used to visit m joubert at villeneuve during the vintage i walked with him on the yon hills he picked mushrooms in the copses and i yellow saffron in the fields we talked of everything and particularly of our friend madame de beaumont forever absent we recall the memory of our former hopes at night we returned to villeneuve a town surrounded by broken-down walls of the time of philip augustus and by half-raised towers from above which rose the smoke from the vintage's hearths joubert showed me in the distance from the hill a sandy path among the woods which he used to take when going to see his neighbour who hid herself at the chateau de passy during the terror i have passed four or five times through the senonais since the death of my dear host i saw the hills from the high road joubert walked there no longer i recognised the trees the fields the vines the little heaps of stones on which we used to rest ourselves driving through villeneuve i have cast a glance on the deserted street and the closed house of my friend the last time when that happened i was going on an embassy to rome ah if he had been at home i would have taken him with me to madame de beaumont's grave it has pleased god to open a celestial rome to m joubert even better suited to his soul which abandoned platonism for christianity i shall not meet him again here below i shall go to him rather but he shall not return to me the success of atala having decided me to start afresh on the genie du christianisme of which two volumes were already in print madame de beaumont offered to give me a room in the country in a house which she had hired at savigny i spent six months with her in this retreat with m joubert and our other friends the house stood at the entrance to the village on the paris side near an old high road known in that part as the chemin de henri IV. it leant against a vine-clad slope and faced savigny park 
ending in a wooded screen and crossed by the little river orge on the left the plain of viry spread out as far as the springs of juvisy in every direction in this part of the country lie valleys where we used to go in the evenings in search of new walks in the morning we breakfasted together after breakfast i withdrew to my work madame de beaumont had the goodness to copy out the quotations which i marked for her this noble woman offered me a shelter when i had none without the peace which she gave me i should perhaps never have finished a work which i had been unable to complete during my misfortunes i shall evermore remember certain evenings passed in this refuge of friendship on returning from walking we gathered near a fresh-water basin which stood in the middle of a grass-plot in the kitchen-garden madame joubert madame de beaumont and i sat down on a bench madame joubert's son rolled on the grass at our feet that child has already disappeared Monsieur joubert walked alone on a gravel path two watch-dogs and a cat played around us while pigeons cooed on the edge of the roof what happiness for a man newly landed from exile after spending eight years in profound abandonment excepting a few days quickly lapsed it was generally on these evenings that my friends made me talk of my travels i have never described the desert of the new world so well as at that time at night when the windows of our rustic drawing-room were open madame de beaumont noted different constellations telling me that i should remember one day that she had taught me to know them since i have lost her i have several times not far from her grave in rome in the midst of the campagna looked in the firmament for the stars whose names she told me i have seen them shining above the sabine hills the protracted rays of those stars shot down and struck the surface of the tiber the spot where i saw them over the woods of savigny the spots where i have seen them since the fitfulness of my destinies that sign which a woman had left for me in the sky to remind me of her all this broke my heart by what miracle does man consent to do what he does upon earth he who is doomed to die one day in our retreat we saw a man enter stealthily by one window and go out by another it was monsieur de laborie he was escaping from bonaparte's claws shortly after appeared one of those souls in pain which are of a different species from other souls and which on their passage mingle their unknown misfortune with the vulgar sufferings of mankind it was lucile my sister after my arrival in france i had written to my family to inform them of my return madame la comtesse de marigny my eldest sister was the first to come to me went to the wrong street and met five messieurs lasagne of whom the last climbed up through a cobbler's trap-door to answer to his name madame de chateaubriand came in her turn she was charming and full of the qualities calculated to give me the happiness which i found with her after we came together again madame la comtesse de caux lucile came next Monsieur joubert and madame de beaumont became smitten with a passionate fondness and a tender pity for her then commenced between them a correspondence which ended only with the death of the two women who had bent over towards one another like two flowers of the same species on the point of fading away madame lucile having stopped at versailles on the thirtieth of september eighteen o two i received this note from her i write to beg you to thank madame de beaumont on my behalf for the invitation she has sent me to go to savigny i hope to have that pleasure in about a fortnight unless there be any objection on madame de beaumont's side madame de caux came to savigny as she had promised i have told you how in my youth my sister a canoness of the chapter of the argentiere and destined for that of remiremont cherished an attachment for m de malfilatre a counsellor to the parliament of brittany which remaining locked within her breast had increased her natural melancholy during the revolution she married a m le comte de caux and lost him after fifteen months of marriage the death of madame la comtesse de farcy a sister whom she fondly loved added to madame de caux's sadness she next attached herself to madame de chateaubriand my wife and gained an empire over the latter which became painful for lucile was violent masterful unreasonable and madame de chateaubriand subject to her caprices 
hid from her in order to render her the services which a richer shows to a susceptible and less happy friend lucile's genius and character had almost reached the pitch of madness of jean-jacques rousseau she thought herself exposed to secret enemies she gave madame de beaumont m joubert myself false addresses at which to write to her she examined the seals seeking to discover whether they had not been broken she wandered from one home to the other unable to remain either with my sisters or my wife she had taken an antipathy to them and madame de chateaubriand after showing her a devotion surpassing all that one could imagine had ended by breaking down under the burden of so cruel an affection another fatality had struck lucile m de chenedolle then living near vire had gone to see her at fougeres soon there was talk of a marriage which fell through everything failed my sister at once and thrown back upon herself she no longer had the strength to bear up this plaintive spectre rested for a moment on a stone in the smiling solitude of savigny there were so many hearts there which would have joyfully received her they would so gladly have restored her to a sweet reality of existence but lucile's heart could beat only in an atmosphere made expressly for her and never breathed by others she swiftly devoured the days of the world apart in which heaven had placed her why had god created a being only to suffer what mysterious relation can there be between a long-suffering nature and an eternal principle my sister had not changed in any way she had only taken the fixed expression of her ills her head had sunk a little like a head on which the hours had weighed heavily she reminded me of my parents those first family memories evoked from the grave surrounded me like wraiths which had gathered round at night to warm themselves at the dying flame of a funeral pile as i watched her i seemed to see in lucile my whole childhood looking out at me from behind her somewhat wild eyes the vision of pain faded away that woman borne down by life seemed to have come to fetch the other dejected woman whom she was to take with her the summer passed according to custom i promised myself to begin it again next year but the hand of the clock does not return to the hour which we would wish to call back during the winter in paris i made some new acquaintances m julien a rich man obliging and a jovial table companion although belonging to a family in which they kill themselves had a box at the francais he used to lend it to madame de beaumont i went four or five times to the play with m de fontaine and m joubert when i entered the world old-fashioned comedy was in all its glory i found it again in a state of complete decomposition tragedy still kept up thanks to mademoiselle du chenois and above all to talma who had attained the highest level of dramatic talent i had seen him when he made his first appearances he was less handsome and so to speak less young than at the age when i saw him again he had acquired the distinction the nobility and the gravity of years the portrait of talma which madame de steel has drawn in her work on germany is only half true the brilliant writer saw the great actor through a woman's imagination and attributed to him what he lacked of the intermediate world talma did not know what to make he did not understand the man of gentle birth he did not know our old-time society he had not sat at the table of high-born ladies in the gothic tower enshrined in the wood he knew nothing of the flexibility the variety of expression the gallantry the light charm of manner the ingenuousness the tenderness the heroism based upon honour the christian devotion of chivalry he was not tancred or cousy or at least he turned them into heroes of a middle age of his own creation his othello was placed in the heart of vendome then what was talma himself his century and antiquity he had the deep and concentrated passions of love and of patriotism they burst from his breast with the force of an explosion he had the baleful inspiration the deranged genius of the revolution through which he had passed the terrible spectacles with which he was once surrounded were renewed in his talent with the lamentable and distant accents of the choruses of sophocles and euripides his grace which was not conventional grace took hold of you like misfortune 
dark ambition remorse jealousy melancholy of soul physical pain madness produced by the gods and adversity human affliction those were what he knew his mere entrance upon the stage the mere sound of his voice were mightily tragic suffering and thought were mingled on his brow breathed in his immovability in his poses his gestures his steps as a greek he would arrive panting and ominous from the ruins of argos an immortal orestes tormented for three thousand years by the eumenides as a frenchman he would come from the solitudes of saint-denis where the parkai of seventeen ninety three had cut the thread of the sepulchral life of the kings the very picture of sorrow awaiting something unknown but decreed by an unjust heaven he went his way the galley-slave of fate inexorably chained between fatality and terror time casts an inevitable obscurity over the older dramatic masterpieces its projected shadow changes the purest raphaels into rembrandts but for talma a part of the marvels of corneille and Versine would have remained unknown dramatic talent is a torch it fires other half-extinguished torches and revived geniuses which enrapture you with their renewed splendour we owe to talma the perfection of the actor's dress but are stage realism and rigour of costume so necessary to art as is supposed racine's characters derive nothing from the cut of their clothes in the pictures of the first painters the backgrounds are neglected and the costumes incorrect the furies of orestes or the prophecies of jode read in a drawing-room by talma in a dress-coat made as great an impression as when declaimed upon the stage by talma in a greek mantle or a jewish robe if a Genard was attired like madame de sevigne when boileau addressed those fine verses to his friend jamais iphigenie en olide immolée n'a coûté tant de pleurs à la grèce assemblée que dans leur spectacle nos yeux étalés n'en a fait sous son nom verser la chamelée this correctness in the representation of inanimate objects is the spirit of the arts of our time it points to the decadence of lofty poetry and of the true drama we are content with lesser beauties when we are impotent to achieve the greater we imitate armchairs and velvet to perfection when we are no longer able to paint the expression of the man seated on that velvet and in those armchairs nevertheless once one has descended to that truthfulness of material forms one finds oneself obliged to reproduce it for the public itself materialized demands it meanwhile i was finishing the genie du christianisme lucien asked to see some of the proofs i sent them to him he added some rather commonplace notes in the margins although the success of my big book was as brilliant as that of my little atala it was nevertheless more widely contested this was a serious work in which i no longer fought the principles of the old literature and of philosophy with a novel but attacked them directly with arguments and facts the voltairian empire uttered a cry and flew to arms madame de steel was mistaken as to the future of more religious studies they brought her the work uncut she pushed her fingers between the pages came upon the chapter headed the virginite and said to monsieur adrien de montmorency who was with her oh heavens ah poor chateaubriand that will fall to the ground the abbe de boulogne who has shown some portions of my work before it was sent to press said to the bookseller who asked his opinion if you want to ruin yourself print that and the abbe de boulogne has since written an all too splendid eulogy of my book everything in fact seemed to prophesy failure what hope could i have i with no name and no extollers of destroying the influence of voltaire which had prevailed for more than half a century of voltaire who had raised the huge edifice completed by the encyclopedists and consolidated by all the famous men in europe what were the diderots the d'alemberts the duclos the dupuis the avesius the condorcet minds that carried no authority what was the world to return to the golden legend to renounce the admiration it had acquired for masterpieces of science and reason how could i ever win a case which rome armed with its thunders the clergy with its might had been unable to save 
a case defended in vain by the archbishop of paris christophe de beaumont supported by the decrees of the parliament and the armed force and name of the king was it not as ridiculous as it was rash on the part of an unknown man to set himself against a philosophical movement so irresistible as to have produced the revolution it was curious to see a pygmy toughen his little arms to stifle the progress of a century stop civilization and thrust back the human race thank god a word would be enough to pulverize the madman oh for m ganguenet when trouncing the genie du christianisme in the decade declared that the criticism came too late since my tautologist production was already forgotten he said this five or six months after the publication of a work which the attack of the whole french academy on the occasion of the decennial prizes was not able to kill it was amid the ruins of our temples that i published the genie du christianisme the faithful thought themselves saved men at that time felt a need of faith a thirsting for religious consolations which arose from the want of those consolations experienced since long years what supernatural strength was required to bear all the adversities undergone how many mutilated families had to go to the father of mankind in search of the children they had lost how many broken hearts how many solitary souls were calling for a divine hand to cure them one threw oneself into the house of god as one enters a doctor's house on the outbreak of an infection the victims of our disturbances and how many different kinds of victims save themselves at the altar shipwrecked men clinging to the rock on which they seek for salvation bonaparte at that time hoping to found his power on the first basis of society had just made arrangements with the court of rome he had first raised no obstacle against the publication of a work calculated to enhance the popularity of his schemes he had to struggle against the men about him and against the declared enemies of religion he was glad therefore to be defended from the outside by the opinion called up by the genie du christianisme later he repented him of his mistake ideas of regular monarchy had sprung into being together with ideas of religion an episode in the genie du christianisme which at the time caused less stir than atala fixed one of the characters of modern literature but i may say that if rene did not exist i should not now write it if it were possible for me to destroy it i would do so a family of renes poets and prose writers has swarmed into being we have heard nothing but mournful and desultory phrases it has been a question of nothing but winds and storms of unknown words directed to the clouds and the night no scribbler fresh from college but has imagined himself the unhappiest of men no babe of sixteen but has believed himself to have exhausted life and to be tormented by his genius but has in the abyss of his thoughts abandoned himself to the wave of his passions struck his pale and dishevelled brow and astonished stupefied mankind with a misfortune of which he did not know the name nor they either in rene i had laid bare one of the infirmities of my century but it was a different madness in the novelists to try to make universal such transcendental afflictions the general sentiments which compose the basis of humanity paternal and maternal affection filial piety friendship love are inexhaustible but particular ways of feeling idiosyncrasies of mind and character cannot be spread out and multiplied over wide and numerous scenes the small undiscovered corners of the human heart are a narrow field there is nothing left to gather in that field after the hand which has been the first to mow it a malady of the soul is not a permanent nor natural state one cannot reproduce it make a literature of it make use of it as of a general passion constantly modified at the will of the artists who handle it and change its form be that as it may literature became tinged with the colours of my religious paintings even as public affairs have retained the phraseology of my writings on citizenship the monarchy according to the charter has been the rudiment of our representative government and my article in the conservateur on moral interests and material interests has bequeathed those two designations to politics writers did me the honour of imitating atala and rené in the same way that the pulpit borrowed my accounts of the missions and advantages of christianity 
the passages in which i show that by driving the pagan divinities from the woods our broader religion has restored nature to its solitudes the paragraphs where i discuss the influence of our religion upon our manner of seeing a painting where i examine the changes wrought in poetry and eloquence the chapters which i devote to inquiries into the foreign sentiments introduced into the dramatic characters of antiquity contain the germ of the new criticism racine's characters as i have said both are and are not greek characters they are christian characters that is what no one had understood if the effect of the genie du christianisme had been only a reaction against doctrines to which the revolutionary misfortunes were attributed that effect would have ceased so soon as the cause was removed it would not have been prolonged to the time at which i am writing but the action of the genie du christianisme upon public opinion was not confined to the momentary resurrection of a religion supposed to be in its grave a more lasting metamorphosis was operated if the work contained innovations of style it also contained changes of doctrine not only the manner but the matter was altered atheism and materialism were no longer the basis of the belief or unbelief of young minds the idea of god and of the immortality of the soul resumed its empire whence came an alteration in the chain of ideas linked one to the other a man was no longer riveted to his place by an anti-religious prejudice he no longer thought himself obliged to remain a mummy of annihilation wrapped in philosophical swathing bands he permitted himself to examine any system however absurd it might seem to him even though it were christian besides the faithful who returned at the sound of their shepherd's voice there were formed by this right of free examination other a priori faithful lay down god as a principle and the word will follow the son proceeds necessarily from the father the various abstract combinations succeed only in substituting for the christian mysteries other mysteries still more difficult of comprehension pantheism which besides exists in three or four shapes and which it is the fashion nowadays to ascribe to enlightened intelligences is the absurdest of eastern dreams brought back to light by spinoza one has but to read the article by the sceptic bale on that jew of amsterdam the positive tone in which certain people speak of all these things would be revolting were it not that it arises from want of study they take up words which they do not understand and imagine themselves to be transcendental geniuses be assured that abelard that saint bernard that st thomas aquinas and their fellows brought to bear upon the study of metaphysics a superiority of judgment which we do not approach that the saint simonian phalansterian fourieristic humanitarian systems were discovered and practised by the different heresies that which is placed before us as progress and discovery is so much old lumber hawked about for fifteen centuries in the schools of greece and the colleges of the middle ages the misfortune is that the first sectaries could not succeed in founding their neoplatonic republic when gallienus permitted plotinus to make the experiment in campania later people made the great mistake of burning the sectaries when they proposed to establish the community of goods and to pronounce prostitution holy by urging that a woman cannot without sin refuse a man who asks of her a transient union in the name of jesus christ all that was needed said they to accomplish this union was to annihilate one's soul and deposit it for a moment in the bosom of god the shock which the genie du christianisme gave to men's minds caused the eighteenth century to emerge from the old road and flung it forever out of its path people began again or rather they began for the first time to study the sources of christianity on re-reading the fathers presuming that they had read them before they were struck at meeting with so many curious facts so much philosophical science so many beauties of style of every kind so many ideas which by a more or less perceptible gradation produced the transition from ancient to modern society an unique and memorable era of humanity in which heaven communicates with earth through the medium of souls set in men of genius beside the crumbling world of paganism there arose in former times as though outside society another world looking on at those great spectacles poor retiring secluded taking no part in the business of life except when its lessons or its succour were needed it was a marvellous thing to see those early bishops 
almost all honoured with the name of saints and martyrs, those simple priests watching over the relics and cemeteries, those monks and hermits in their convents or in their caves, laying down laws of peace, morals, charity, when all was war, corruption, barbarism, going between the tyrants of Rome and the leaders of the Tartars and Goths, to prevent the injustice of the former and the cruelty of the latter, stopping armies with a wooden cross and a peaceful word, the weakest of men, and protecting the world against Attila, placed between two universes to be the link that joined them, to console the last moments of an expiring society, and support the first steps of a society in its cradle. It was impossible but that the truths unfolded in the Genie du Christianisme should contribute to a change of ideas. Again, it is to this work that the present love for the buildings of the Middle Ages is due. It is I who have called upon the young century to admire the old temples. If my opinion has been misused, if it is not true that our cathedrals approach the Parthenon in beauty, if it is false that those churches teach us unknown facts in their documents of stone, if it is madness to maintain that those granite memories reveal to us things that escape the learned Benedictines, if by dint of eternally repeating the word Gothic people grow weary to death of it, that is not my fault. For the rest, with respect to the arts, I know the shortcomings of the Genie du Christianisme. That portion of my work is faulty, because in 1800 I was not acquainted with the arts. I had not seen Italy, nor Greece, nor Egypt. Also I did not make sufficient use of the lives of the saints and of the legends, although they offered me a number of marvellous instances. By selecting with taste, one could there reap a plentiful harvest. This field of the wealth of medieval imagination surpasses the metamorphoses of Ovid and the Milesian fables in fruitfulness. My work, moreover, contains some scanty or false judgments, such as that which I pronounce upon Dante, to whom I have since paid a brilliant tribute. In the serious respect, I have completed the Genie du Christianisme in my Etude Historique, one of my writings that has been least spoken of and most plundered. The success of Atala had delighted me, because my soul was still fresh. That of the Genie du Christianisme was painful to me. I was obliged to sacrifice my time to a more or less useless correspondence and to irrelevant civilities. A so-called admiration did not atone to me for the vexations that await a man whose name the crowd remembers. What good can supply the place of the peace which you have lost by admitting the public to your intimacy? Add to that the restlessness with which the muses love to afflict those who attach themselves to the occult, the worries attendant upon a compliant character, inaptitude for fortune, loss of pleasure, an uncertain temper, lively affections, unreasonable melancholy, groundless joys, who, if he had the choice, would purchase on those conditions, the uncertain advantages of a reputation which you are not sure of obtaining, which will be contested during your life, which posterity will refuse to confirm, and which your death will snatch from you for ever. The literary controversy on innovations of style which Atala had aroused was renewed upon the publication of the Genie du Christianisme. A characteristic feature of the imperial school, and even of the republican school, must be noted. While society advanced for better or for worse, literature remained stationary. Foreign to the change of the ideas, it did not belong to its own time. In comedy, the squires of the village, the Collins, the Babettes, or else the intrigues of the drawing-rooms, which were no longer known, were played, as I have already remarked, before coarse and bloodthirsty men, themselves the destroyers of the manners whose picture was presented to them. In tragedy, a plebeian pit interested itself in the families of nobles and kings. Two things kept literature at the date of the eighteenth century, the impiety which it derived from Voltaire and the Revolution, and the despotism with which Bonaparte struck it. The head of the state found a profit in those subordinate letters which he had put in barracks, which presented arms to him, which sallied forth at the command of, Turn out the guard, which marched in rank, and which went through their evolutions like soldiers. Any form of independence seemed a rebellion against his power. He would no more consent to a riot of words and ideas than he suffered insurrection. He suspended the habeas corpus for thought, as well as for individual liberty. Let us also recognise that the public, weary of anarchy, was glad to submit again to the yoke of law and order. 
the literature which expresses the new era did not commence to reign until forty or fifty years after the time of which it was the idiom during that half-century it was employed only by the opposition it was madame de steel it was benjamin constant it was le mercier it was bonheur it was myself in short who were the first to speak that language the alteration in literature of which the nineteenth century boasts came to it from the emigration and from exile it was m de fontaine who brooded on those birds of a different species from himself because by going back to the seventeenth century he had gained the strength of that fertile period and lost the barrenness of the eighteenth one portion of the human intelligence that which treats of transcendental matters alone advanced with an even step with civilization unfortunately the glory of knowledge was not without stain the laplace the lagrange the mange the chaptal the bertholet all the prodigies once haughty democrats became napoleon's most obsequious servants let it be said to the honour of letters the new literature was free science was servile character did not correspond with genius and they whose thought had sped to the uppermost sky were not able to raise their souls above the feet of bonaparte they pretended to have no need of god that was why they needed a tyrant the napoleonic classic was the genius of the nineteenth century dressed up in the periwig of louis the fourteenth or curled as in the days of louis fifteenth bonaparte had ordained that the men of the revolution should not appear at court save in full dress sword at side one saw nothing of the france of the moment it was not order it was discipline nor could anything be more tiresome than that pale resuscitation of the literature of former days that cold copy that unproductive anachronism disappeared when the new literature broke in noisily with the genie du christianisme the death of the duc d'enghien had for me this advantage that by causing me to step aside it left me free in my solitude to follow my own inspiration and prevented me from enlisting in the regular infantry of old pindus i owed my moral to my intellectual liberty in the last chapter of the genie du christianisme i discussed what would have become of the world if the faith had not been preached at the time of the invasion of the barbarians in another paragraph i speak of an important work to be undertaken on the changes which christianity introduced in the laws after the conversion of constantine supposing religious opinion to exist in its present form if the genie du christianisme were yet to be written i would compose it quite differently instead of recalling the benefits and the institutions of our religion in the past i would show that christianity is the thought of the future and of human liberty that that redeeming and messianic thought is the only basis of social equality that it alone can establish the latter because it places by the side of that equality the necessity of duty the corrective and regulator of the democratic instinct legality is no sufficient restraint because it is not permanent it derives its strength from the law now the law is the work of men who pass away and differ a law is not always obligatory it can always be changed by another law as opposed to that morals are constant they have their force within themselves because they spring from the immutable order they alone therefore can ensure permanency i would show that wherever christianity has prevailed it has changed ideas rectified notions of justice and injustice substituted assertion for doubt embraced the whole of humanity in its doctrines and precepts i would try to conjecture the distance at which we still are from the total accomplishment of the gospel by calculating the number of evils that have been destroyed and of improvements that have been effected in the eighteenth centuries which have elapsed on this side of the cross christianity acts slowly because it acts everywhere it does not cling to the reform of any particular society it works upon society in general its philanthropy is extended to all the sons of adam that is what it expresses with a marvellous simplicity in its commonest petitions in its daily prayers when it says to the crowd in the temple let us pray for every suffering thing upon earth what religion has ever spoken in this way the word was not made flesh in the man of pleasure it became incarnate in the man of sorrow with a view to the enfranchisement of all to an universal brotherhood and an infinite salvation 
if the genie du christianisme had only given rise to such investigations i should congratulate myself on having published it it remains to be seen whether at the time of the appearance of the book a different genie du christianisme raised on the new plan the outline of which i have barely indicated would have obtained the same success in eighteen o three when nothing was granted to the old religion when it was the object of scorn when none knew the first word of the question would one have done well to speak of future liberty as descending from calvary at a time when people were still bruised from the excesses of the liberty of the passions would bonaparte have suffered such a work to appear it was perhaps useful to stimulate regrets to interest the imagination in a cause so misjudged to call attention to the despised object to render it enduring before showing how serious it was how mighty and how salutary now supposing that my name leaves some trace behind it i shall owe this to the genie du christianisme with no illusion as to the intrinsic value of the work i admit that it possesses an accidental value it came just at the right moment for this reason it caused me to take my place in one of those historic periods which mixing an individual with things compel him to be remembered if the influence of my work was not limited to the change which in the past forty years it has produced among the living generations if it still served to resuscitate among latecomers a spark of the civilizing truths of the earth if the slight symptom of life which one seems to perceive was there sustained in the generations to come i should depart full of hope in the divine mercy o reconciled christian do not forget me in thy prayers when i am gone my faults perhaps will stop me outside those gates where my charity cried on thy behalf be ye lifted up o eternal gates End of book one